Good morning. What you don't know is when I stand in the pulpit every week, I have a small fan behind me. And depending on the level of difficulty of the sermon, I put the fan on one, two, or three. Today is a three. The topic is, and I've titled the sermon, Male and Female Equality and the Gloriously Liberating Truth of Headship. I am always, well, by the grace of God, aware of my need when I stand before you to handle accurately the Word of God. This is not just another book. This is the authoritative and errant words written by God through men, carried along by the power of the Holy Spirit, given to us. What an awesome responsibility for me, but also for you to receive the Word of God because it is indeed that. Let's pray that God would help us. Father, I hold up your word because it should be held up. It should be made much of because it is for us the words of life. God, even today, as we look at these passages in Genesis and other places, we need your spirit to speak to us. Would you come? Blessed Holy Spirit, speak into our hearts and minds in ways that only you can. Forgive me, for I am a sinner, saved by grace and grace alone. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. And a couple of weeks ago, I mentioned that I picked up a terminology from uh, the president of Southern Seminary, Southern Baptist Seminary, uh, Al Mohler. And uh, he uses, because his wife was a nurse, I mean his wife, his mom was a nurse, this concept of triage. When a patient is brought into an ER, if he has a gunshot wound, in the, in the concept of triage, that person's going to go before the person that has the insect bite. Because the idea is that the most, those in most chronic need should be moved to the front. And uh, he says that there is something called doctrinal triage. And that first order issues in doctrinal triage would be something like salvation issues. That if you don't believe this, this essential truth, you cannot be saved. And then he says there's second order and third order. Third order, I'm going to jump to that, would be it really matters, but it's not essential to saving faith. So, for example, whether you believe in evolution, theistic evolution, that God created the world that way, or that he just breathed and the world was there, that's a third order issue. A second order issue, more important than third, would be it is a very important doctrine. You could still be a Christian and not agree to this, though, and that's important. 
It's a very important doctrine, but you could obviously still be a believer and not believe this way. Today, I'm attempting to talk through the Scriptures, and especially Genesis, on the roles of men and women, and I'm going to use words like equality. I'm going to use words like headship, and I'll try to explain those. I'm going to use words, and these are in different categories, complementarianism and egalitarianism. And basically what those things mean and how we understand them is a lot of how we understand Scripture as it unfolds. And so this concept of headship is one of the doctrines that I believe is foundational, not to salvation, but foundational to your biblical view of the world. Another way to say that is your world view. The way you understand truth or not dictates how you see things and how you see the world. So it is our, my understanding of God's design and desire for men and women that headship is all throughout the scriptures. And I'm going to show you why I believe that to be true. But know this, I turned the fan on three. Actually, I didn't. I put it on one. Um, because this is a smoldering hot topic in our society today. And as I move further into this, you're going to know why I'm saying that. I will say, though, that the scriptures are countercultural, which is usually the case. Culture says it's this way. The scriptures tend to say, <laughs> nope, it's this way. And that is what makes this job challenging, is that I have to represent, and I, my, my conscience bears me uh, captive to tell you what I believe this says, not necessarily what our culture is telling us. Don't shoot the messenger. Study the message. So our mind and our hearts... They may not accept headship, but God has given us this truth in Scripture, and I believe if it's understood properly, it is gloriously liberating. But it must be understood properly. Here's the thing. I believe that our minds misunderstand. Follow this. Follow this. Our minds misunderstand often what our hearts detest. I think that's what's happening with people that don't know the Lord. They don't want to surrender to his lordship so their mind cannot understand because their heart detests the truths of it. I think that this can be one of those truths, but the, but the, the, the scriptures, and I hope to show you this, doesn't necessarily warranty that your heart would detest it. I think that this is a glorious truth and it is God's wisdom for mankind that headship be what it is. And we're going to look at that. Before I go much further, I want to tell you that I am going to teach the orthodox position of the Christian church for the last 2,000 years. So what I'm teaching you is not a new thing. 
It's only really been in the last 100, 150 years that the teaching has gone a different direction. For 2,000 years, this has pretty much been what it has been taught. And not only that, but there was a dog-eat-dog battle in the very denomination of our church that was settled in 2000, and it landed where I'm preaching from today. So our very denomination, 2,000 years of Orthodox history, and then my own personal conviction is this is what the Scriptures teach. So let's look at Genesis 1 and 2 together. If you would, open your Bibles there. And look with me at Genesis 1, 27. Genesis 1, 27. This is what it says. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Laura just read this to us. This text is saying male and female are both made in the image of God. Both made in the image of God. Now, one verse later, Genesis 1.28, look at that. And God blessed them, and he said to them, Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and subdue it. Have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on earth. We are both male and female called to rule and have dominion what i'm saying there ladies if you can't hear that if you didn't hear it i want you to hear it god's given you leadership just like he's given men leadership we are to do this together to rule and have dominion over god's creation and so we have a lot in common male and female Look at uh, Genesis 2.23. In Genesis 2.23 it says, Then the man said, and this is when God had created Eve, This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, and she shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And last week if you were here I said in Jerry Maguire, the famous line was, You complete me woman completed man not just in a physical way not just in an emotional way but in a spiritual way we need each other to rightly glorify and know God and that's part of God's creation design we complement one another is another way to say that and those in the complementarian viewpoint would take from texts like this. We complement one another. There is equal value. And ladies, please hear this because generations of men have skewed this so badly that you need to hear this over and over and over. And I want you to hear it from me right here and right now that what I believe is that there is no difference, no difference between the value of men and women, both created in the image of God. However, I do think as we get further into it, you'll see that 
God gives us different roles. No, no distinction in value, but God does give different roles. And I think that in those roles, it gets distorted sometimes that one is more valuable than the other. And I do not believe that's what the Scripture teaches at all. And so, we begin to see in Genesis 2 the concept that I'm calling headship revealed in Scripture. Now, uh, Ray Ortland Jr. has written in a paper in a book that was edited by Wayne Grudem and John Piper on recovering biblical manhood and womanhood. And in that paper, one of the chapters of that book, Ray Ortland says this about man and woman. And I want to give you a definition of that. He says, man and woman are equal in the sense that they bear God's image equally. No different than what I've just said. But then he says, talking about headship, he says this, in the partnership of two spiritually equal human beings, man and woman, the man bears the primary responsibility to lead the partnership in a God-glorifying way. That's the concept of headship. The man bears the primary responsibility of leading the relationship into a God-glorifying way. The model of headship is found in our Lord. The Lord himself is head over the church. And he is modeling not only that, but I'm going to get into this a little further later. God set up this whole marriage thing to show us headship, Christ over his church. And when we mess with the roles in that, we mess with the way to reflect the glory of God. And that's what the essential problem begins to be. Look at uh, Ephesians 5, 22 and 23. <clears throat> and I know, women, this starts out kind of challenging, but you've sat through so many weddings, you can probably hear it again. Um, this is kind of the famous wedding verse as it starts out. <clears throat> Ephesians 5, starting in 22, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. So you see, Christ is the head of the church. I would say the reason the husband is the head of the wife is because God is trying to show us something through biblical marriage about Christ and the church. Now, as the church submits to Christ, see there? So also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. The whole reason, though, is because God is trying to show us something some spiritual thing through something that we see on earth so that we can understand it better. What we see in this text is headship. The husband is the head, even as Christ is the head of the church. The wife here emulates submission. She models submission like the church submits to Christ. This is a gloriously huge responsibility because ladies are to show a lost world who God is. That's part 
of what God is saying there. Meanwhile, men are to love their wives as Christ loved the church. If men did this, it would make following so incredibly much easier. But men have failed women again and again and again. And the way that men fail is they dominate or they're passive. And I'm going to explain that further in a moment. Look, though, at uh, our passage in Ephesians. Husbands, it says, Love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor. So it's, it is going, it's rolling back and forth from husbands to wives to Christ to the church. There's no escaping the reality that there is a clear connection that God is trying to make, that he wants the marriage to reflect Christ's relationship with the church. And so he says, <clears throat> in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. See, in and out, in and out, church, Christ, Christ, church, husband, wife. He's saying it is the way I have chosen to reflect the church. And then, notice what he quotes right here. This is from Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother. So Paul is going back to Genesis 2, and he's quoting it. He says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I'm saying it refers to Christ and the church. Now, it's just this back and forth. He's saying Christ and the church and marriage, it's his way of revealing what he had in plan, what he had planned in creation. And so you see biblical marriage, a marriage between a man and a woman, was created by God in part to reflect the relationship of Christ to the church. Men are to emulate the love of Christ for their wives, and wives are to follow as the church follows Christ. Biblical headship starts at creation, and it can be seen in God created Adam first. God had Adam name the animals, in part to show him his need for Eve. God gave man a helper, Eve. Adam named Eve. God took Eve from Adam's rib. God has a created order. And God gave Adam, and this is, you need to hear, God gave Adam the command, not Eve, to not eat of the tree of good and evil before Eve was even created. So how was Eve to know? Adam 
was responsible to tell her. But you know what Adam did? He did what men are doing for 2,000 or higher, now it's been five, 6,000 years since men been on the planet. You know what men do? They shuck responsibility. You know what the thing you have to teach a young boy to do? Take responsibility. You see, Adam could have prevented this. But he stood by silently. Let me show you. Look at Genesis 3, 1 through 7. Genesis 3, 1 through 7. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field and the Lord, that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a light to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. Isn't that interesting? What's he been doing this whole time? Yeah. And corrupting God's created order. God had told him to tell her. God had told him to lead her. And he did not. He stood by passively watching all of this take place. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Notice what Satan does. It isn't any different than what he does to us. Satan basically comes to her and he says to Eve, God's holding out on you, Eve. He doesn't want you to know what he knows or he doesn't want you to have what he has Eve is deceived by him and she eats the fruit and then she gives it to her husband Adam, Adam has apparently been standing right there the entire time <laughs> you know what Adam should have done he should have stopped the process he should have said honey come here for a minute and he should have pulled her off and he should have said I'm called by God to protect you part of me being a man is to protect you this serpent is lying to us God himself told me we're not to eat of that honey Trust me on this. We need to obey God. You know what Eve would have done based on my experience with women? She would have said, okay, I trust you. That's what I have experienced. But Eve did not, I mean, but Adam did not do that. Adam stood by passively. 
And I say, I think there's two things that men do to get their way and to shut responsibility. One of them is they, if they can't get what they want in the moment, they dominate. Well, I'm going to sit here and watch the game all day. You can clean house and do whatever you need to do. I've worked all week. I deserve my time in front of the TV. That's how they might put their foot down and dominate. Women, no wonder, resent that. The other way is, and, and they do it. Men will do this in a matter of five to ten seconds. One minute we'll be dominating, then she'll say something else, and we'll realize actually the best response here is to be passive. Like, do I look good in this dress? Or does this make me look fat? Man will go, oh, gosh. <laughs> I'm having trouble with my eyes today. Honey, I can't see anything. No, we will find a way to be passive, to get out of responsibility. Men, from the fall, God says, after this, will work by the sweat of their brow, and men will find creative ways to buck and shuck responsibility, and women will step into it. Women will take responsibility. They will step into responsibility, and that probably is what was happening with Eve. And Adam did not protect her, and another thing he didn't do is he didn't confront the evil. He did not confront the serpent. He could have said to the serpent, get out of here before I kick your tail. You're lying. It's a lie from the pit of hell. Eve, don't listen to that. Instead, he said, yeah, pass it over here. I'll take a bite and see how it is. So, it's no wonder if you look at Romans 5.17, here you see headship ultimately played out. In Romans 5.17, give you a second to look there, and it also it's on the screen. For if because of one man's trespass, one man's sin, you know who that one man was? Adam. Death reigned through that one man. When, when Adam sinned, he plunged us into sin and death. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. So you have the first Adam in Genesis. The second Adam is Jesus. Both represent headship and represent federal headship. That he represented all of creation. When Adam fell, we all fell. But when Christ came as the second Adam and did what he did and died for us, now we have a chance to follow the second Adam into life. And so Adam becomes a figure and a headship, though a true person. And it's Paul is saying, look at this, look at this. Here's the question that I had in my study this week. See if you can follow me. Why is Adam considered the one who plunged 
mankind into death and sin. Wasn't it Eve that took the first bite? You know what the answer is? Headship. He was supposed to protect her, be her head, care for her, cherish her, nurture her, and he did not. He failed his responsibility. He would not take or did not take responsibility to be the head of his home and to lead his wife. Adam was her representative, and he became our representative. Now, look at 1 Corinthians eleven three. To the Corinthians, Paul says this, but I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. And that last one is really interesting. You see, God has built into his creation an authority structure so there will be order and it will, it will cause holiness among his people. I don't know about you, but being under authority has been one of the harder things in my life. I had a boss years ago, and I don't want to tell you when because you may know him, uh, who was horrible. He was insecure. He felt threatened by me. He made decisions that were purposefully, I'm convinced, to hurt me. And being under his leadership was intolerable. It was horrible. God has set up authority structures. And you know what? In our flesh, we recoil from authority. People will say, I have a problem with authority. I'm like, I know you do. You're a sinner. Like the rest of us. We all got a problem with authority, if you want to get honest. At the back and the core and down there somewhere deep, none of us really likes authority. It is the way of the flesh. But the way of the Spirit is to accept authority as coming from God Himself. And the Scriptures teach that all over. It's not easy. But what's interesting is Christ came and submitted. Here's God. He submits to the Father while he's walking on earth and puts himself under authority. You know why he did that? Because we needed a model and we needed a one who would be a substitute for all of our sin when we're under authority. And Christ becomes the perfect model of how to be under authority. Even authority that called him to go to the cross and die. So, authority is good for us. It is liberating. It brings God much glory. And you can read 1 Peter 3 about that. When you suffer unjustly under authority, but you bear up underneath that, God will exalt that. So, what I'm saying is, if you've ever experienced great leadership in your life, it's not a burden to follow. 
Consequently, on the other side, I have been under good leadership. And when that leader told me something to do, I would run through that wall for him. Because I trusted him and because I knew he was benevolent and good. Perhaps the greatest problem with male headship is that men tend towards not taking responsibility and being dominant or being passive. And those are the ways that we deal. And so, is it any wonder that women feel like, how can I follow that? You know, if men would lead as Christ led, and what I mean is lovingly, sacrificially, putting her first, headship, I'm convinced, would be a non-issue. But, or if it was done right, women would have been able to vote before 1920. That's just phenomenal to me. See, male headship, good leadership, would have said, that is wrong. It's wrong. And they would have rose up and done something about it. Women would have been able to vote. They would have been cherished. They would have been protected. They would have been adorned. They would have received equal pay for equal work. This should be the case in the Christian family and the church. In our marriage, I try to bring Peggy in on everything. And I know I've got friends that this is very different. But I try to bring her in on everything. Finances, use of time, uh, work, all of it. And when we face a decision together, I sometimes kind of position myself like a manager of a baseball team. And what I mean by that is there are certain areas when we start talking about it, Peggy's better than me. She's more competent than me in some of these areas. Matter of fact, there's lots of them. And so what I do is I say, well, because we're talking about this, I would be willing to put you up to bat because you have a better batting average than I do on these issues. So would you bat for us in this situation? And more often than not, she delivers, and I'm the brilliant manager. But sometimes she strikes out. And then I go, stupid woman. No, no. You know what I do if I'm walking in the power of the Holy Spirit and, and following Christ? I say, honey, that's on me. I put you up to the plate. I'm responsible ultimately. The buck stops with me. God has made me the head of the, the household. You struck out. I'm sure I would have struck out and probably fallen down. So it's on me. Don't worry about it. I, I'm, you know, Peggy and I were talking about this. I'm almost more, I'm, I'm pretty convinced that when complementarianism is done in a biblical way, it doesn't look that different from egalitarianism. Because women are being valued very significantly. But we must know at some point 
the buck, the, somebody's got to make a decision and how do you decide that and so God has said here's how you decide that I'll make men the head of the family and I will say one other thing about this and I, I got it in my notes later <laughs> women are just as smart if not smarter women are just as capable if not more capable there are today women CEOs, presidents of major corporations, women in elite positions all over the world as scientists and all, all kinds of things. And I think this is all good and well. As a father with two bright young women, I want them to have opportunities. And I see that our culture is moving in some healthy ways and giving opportunities, though I realize things are less than perfect. So I am not saying that in any way headship means women can't do these things. But now let's look at what Paul says about headship in the church. And quite frankly, this is where it gets a little rough and rocky, but I want you to turn with me to a highly controversial passage in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. And I need to frame this a little bit more. I'm not talking about what's happening out there in secular society. I'm not talking about what's happening in the world here. Here, I'm only talking about, and you need to know this or you're gonna, it's going to get skewed. I'm only talking about God's people, biblical Christian homes, and the church, okay? I'm not talking about everything else out there. There were similarities between the problems in Ephesus and Corinth. There, and and in, in 1 Timothy here, Timothy is in Ephesus, and Paul's writing to him, and he's trying to deal with some distortions that are happening in the church they were happening in Ephesus, and they were also happening in Corinth. And one of those distortions was inside the church, there was beginning to be some role confusion. That's what was going on, and that's why Paul wrote this. So look at 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 15. It says, Let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man. Rather, she is to remain quiet. This is a key piece of it right here. For Adam was formed first. Doesn't mean Adam's better, but, it got, but Paul is saying something about the creation order here. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. In other words, she was deceived by the serpent, which never would have happened if Adam would have protected her, and he took it willingly. So to me, his sin is greater than hers. She was deceived. He wasn't deceived. He just took it and ate it. Yet, she will be saved through childbearing, and that doesn't mean by having kids she gets salvation. That's a whole other issue I don't know that we have time to talk about. So let me say this. Does this mean women are less than men? Absolutely not. Not a value issue here. What is Paul's point, though? 
What is Paul's point? Here, Paul uses his apostolic, apostolic authority to prohibit two things. Women teaching men in church and women exercising authority over men in the church. Now, women can do in the church and should do all kinds of ministries. And if you want a list of them, I can provide a list of things that women can do because it is endless, almost. But there are two things that Paul limits. The men in the church need the women of the church to be able to fully worship and know God. We need each other, men and women. Men can be kind of like submarines. We go down 2,000 feet and we're just doing our thing. We got no sonar. We don't know where we're at or what we're doing. And women can be, this is just one example, our sonars that come along and say, you know what? I saw what you said in that meeting, and I don't know if you noticed it, but three of the people over there were spitting nails because you said it in this way, and you had no clue what you were saying. And Peggy does this for me, and I go, oh, wow, she's right. I need her to speak into my life and help me see things I don't see. There's way more than that, though, way more than that. Women help us uh, in so many, so many different ways. <clears throat> but then we know, and here's where the sticky part comes. We know, even though this text reads the way it reads, he's pro pro prohibiting women teaching in the church and women exercising authority over men in the church. But even as I stand here, we, we know, and we have family and friends, possibly, that are standing in pulpits that are females all over the country and even all over the world. And so the question is, how is Paul's text here being understood differently? You see, it's straightforward command from the Apostle Paul, so they must be understanding these verses differently than I am at least and differently than 2,000 years of Orthodox Christianity and differently from our denomination quite frankly many argue that the cultural context that Paul is writing both the Corinthians and the Ephesian Christians is different than the culture that we live in today and that's the answer for it, is that that cultural differences should throw out what Paul said because it doesn't apply to our culture. And that's why I said when you read the text, it's so important that you read. It says, why does Paul say this? For Adam was formed first, then Eve. Paul's making the point, this isn't rooted in culture. It's rooted in the created order of God. That's his point. That this is bigger and further and more than just culture. I'm rooting this in the way I set up the world and even marriages. If you corrupt this, you're going to change the way I'm reflecting my image through marriage to the world.
and through the church. Now, the most common argument I have heard, and maybe you have, is Galatians 3.29 to argue against Paul's words to Timothy and the Corinthian church. This is what it says in Galatians 3.29. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is nor male or female. That's key right there. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Here's the thing about Bible study. is If you take a text out of its context, you can do anything with it. The context that that verse was written was in the, t- in the context of explaining justification, meaning we quoted it this morning, how, how we are saved and the act and how it happens. That in justification, God doesn't see male or female. He doesn't see slave or Jew. We are made perfect in him. It wasn't written about gender role. The text was not ever meant. I went back and I read for 2,000 years what all of the great minds of Christianity wrote about that text. For 2,000 years, none of them alluded to gender roles. They all talked about justification because that's the context that that text comes up in. Now, when you get to 1950s, all of a sudden, the commentators start talking about gender, about this text. So you could say, well, it's because we're more enlightened now. We get it, you know. We, we're with it. And I would say, be careful. Be really, really careful. You're just now figuring out truth that for 2,000 years it was taught another way? (laughs) That's shaky ground. That's shaky ground. I believe that the Apostle Paul would be shocked if he heard the way he wrote that text is being used to talk about gender roles today because that was the furthest thing from his mind when he wrote that text. It's taken out of context. It's misused. Equality and submission can coexist in glorious harmony. And it's ultimately proven through the Trinity. It's proven through the Trinity. Paul in our text was talking about the created order. God is giving us a picture of Christ and the church through the marriage relationship and its role when we change the roles and distort God we distort God's glory to be reflected by the roles of each in marriage so I have uh, run out of time I have way more that I wanted to say but I will say this Look at Genesis 3.15. Or maybe even better. I want to I finish actually with the Philippians 2, 6 through 9. If you would look at Philippians 2, 6 through 9, and I'll close with this. 
These are encouraging words from the scriptures about humble submission. It says this. It's talking about Jesus. It says, Who though he was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God, and this is so key, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. This is what I want to say. If you're a woman and you're sitting here and you've read some of these texts about submitting to men, I'm saying that you're like Christ. That Christ did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself and he came to earth and he served. And then what does God do? He highly exalts them. I think that women in God's economy will be highly exalted because they were asked to play a more submissive, humble role in this life. I think there's something to that. I think we see it in Philippians. I think we see it in other places in the Scripture. And I think that if men aren't exalting women, men are completely missing it. Let's pray.